Just breaking up sedentary behavior seems to be enough to mitigate those negative effects. And that could just be standing up and kind of shaking yourself out, you know, for a couple of minutes every hour or so. But what happens when we do that, interestingly enough, is there's almost like a, an instant increase in our muscles' ability to uptake blood sugar. And it's these postural muscles sort of in our, in our thighs and in our back. And those muscles become instantly active when we stand. So all you really have to do is stand. This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Today, I am joined by Dr. Josh Levin for a discussion on exercise as medicine, the benefits of prescribing physical activity, and the power of consistency. Dr. Levin is a family medicine physician who practices at the Aroga Lifestyle Medicine Clinic in beautiful Victoria, British Columbia. He began his journey with an undergrad in religious studies and philosophy at the University of British Columbia and continued through postgraduate studies in biochemistry, ultimately graduating from McGill Medical School. He has additional training in nutrition and earned a diploma with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Dr. Levin has always been passionate about exercise and fitness. Today, he coaches and competes at a master's level in weightlifting and practices yoga. In his clinic, he shares this passion with his patients, empowering them to make healthy lifestyle changes and helping them make informed choices about the risks and benefits of medical interventions. This conversation is for anyone out there who needs that push to become more physically active or for healthcare professionals looking to learn more about prescribing exercise to their patients. Before we jump in though, you all probably know that I'm all about continuous improvement and learning new things. And last summer, my partner convinced me to start playing golf. I like to think I'm pretty good at most sports, but wow, this game is next level. It can be so frustrating, but I see why so many people are obsessed with it. It's the ultimate test of skill, concentration, and consistency. That's why I'm so excited to partner with Warlock Golf, a Canadian-based company rooted in small-town Manitoba that understands that golf is supposed to be fun. That's why they offer a variety of -of one-of-a-kind ball markers and golf accessories that'll add some serious style to your game. So add some style to your game by visiting warlockgolf.com and use discount code PLANT15 for 15% off your order. That's code PLANT15 for 15% off your order at warlockgolf.com. All right, now please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Josh Levin. Hi, Dr. Levin. I'm super excited to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. All right. Thanks a lot, Cassandra. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm very excited to talk to you a little bit about... uh exercise and medicine and uh, anything else that sparks your interest. <laughs> it's going to be good. Um, so to start, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. I heard you were an athlete before you got into medicine. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so way back in the day, uh, I played high school football in Victoria. Uh, it wasn't actually even high school back then. It was just a community football. And uh, I Ended up going to University of Manitoba uh, to play football there for a couple of years with the Bisons. And that was in 96, 97 or so. So it was quite a long time ago. Um, but I think that was sort of, for me, that was that was probably the peak of my competitive athletic career. Um, after that, I got into school and became sort of a, a career-long student for a long time. But uh, during my days in uh, medical school, I met up with a uh another student who is a big cyclist and i started doing a lot of cycling with him and i got really into that while i was living in montreal and going to mcgill um and that became a sort of a huge passion for me uh working with bikes uh, riding bikes racing bikes just sort of living a a, a cycle infused lifestyle um 
And uh, and then more recently in my life, I've sort of uh, in Montreal, I also found CrossFit and then I got really into that and and uh, and particularly weightlifting. Uh, the CrossFit gym in Montreal that I joined originally or that I found had a weightlifting club attached to it, uh, had a great uh, Eastern European coach and uh, I spent some time there and learned Olympic lifts and uh, yeah, I just really fell in love with that sport quickly and and since then i've had an opportunity to compete a few times as a as a master's athlete in bc and um yeah still still do that and and uh uh you know lots of training and uh we're gonna do a a burpee fundraiser in a couple of weeks as well maybe i can tell you a little bit about that later too yeah i'd, I'd love to hear about that um you kind of had a foot in multiple different sports um that's super cool so you mentioned the Olympic lift, but what's the difference between weightlifting and powerlifting? Um, so powerlifting, classically powerlifting is uh, uh, deadlift. It's three lifts. So it's like the competition is a total where you, you do a deadlift, a bench press and a squat. <clears throat> so, um, so the competition is for maximum weight and there's weight classes. So there's similarities between Olympic lifting and powerlifting in the sense that you have you get um, three attempts at multiple lifts in Olympic lifting. Your two lifts are snatch and clean and jerk. And then your total weight lifted is sort of uh, that's what, what gets uh, compared to other athletes. And there's weight classes in both of those sports as well. So yeah, the, the difference is uh, I suppose in the, in, in Olympic lifting, the, the, the lifts are different. Um, Olympic lifting is also an Olympic sport and it's an international sport. Whereas powerlifting is, uh, not Olympic. Um, it's not, I don't think it's completely international and it doesn't, it has multiple federations. So it's not quite as, uh, um, I guess, uh, sort of professional or, or sort of, um, mainstream as Olympic lifting. Yeah. I, I love how like <clears throat> dynamic and explosive weightlifting is. Um, I've tried to learn a couple of the lifts previously and it's so hard. There's so many like little pieces to it. Um, what do you love most about weightlifting? Yeah. I mean, that's it really. It's, it's a very technical sport. So it's, um, um, for powerlifting, it's, you know, if you're a strong person, you can do well in powerlifting. You don't have to worry too much about technique. Now I know there's probably powerlifters out there who would maybe want to <laughs> A step on me for saying that but <laughs> but olympic lifting definitely is a special sport in the sense that there's a lot of technique and and people who are at the top of the sport have trained for years and years and years just for these two lifts a lot of balance a lot of strength a lot of flexibility so it's it's really like a combination of of um you know the power of sprinting and gymnastics with the flexibility of yoga and the balance of yeah um, gymnastics this really kind of combines all athletic elements better than any sport that I think I've ever tried besides probably, you know, team sport, some team sports, which are, you know, you know, obviously require a lot of athleticism, but, um, Olympic, uh, Olympic lifting is, is a, is a, is a sport that is just sort of builds really all overall athleticism, like no other sport I know of. Yeah. I love that. Um, so what does a training week look like for you? How do you split up your workouts? I think it depends on your lifestyle, depends on your goals. For me right now, um, my goals are to stay fit and to have fun and to keep training as long as I can. I mean, I'm 44, so, you know, it's been a while in the game. And like you, you mentioned, I've played a lot of different sports and I, I've, I've 
really love all these sports. I love competing and I love just, you know, enjoying being fit and, and moving. Um, so, so right. So the, uh, the training schedule really depends on what I'm doing and, and my schedule right now, um, where you're doing a, a, a fundraiser, a kid sport fundraiser in a couple of weeks with some friends of mine, and we're going to do a thousand burpees, uh, outside in a, in a schoolyard somewhere. So what I'm doing right now is a lot of calisthenic training and a lot of burpees. Uh, but because I, you know, because of Olympic lifting for me is, is really a, a passion. I try to get that in once or twice a week to sort of maintain, um, but you know, two months ago I was Olympic lifting three or four times a week, uh, because I did a small, uh, in-house competition at the gym that I'm a member of. And, uh, that was at the end of June. So I was doing a lot of that. So it really does change up. That's part of what I enjoy about the lifestyle too, is that, you know, I might set a goal for myself. Um, you know, maybe I'm trying to squat a certain amount or I'm, you know, I want to, um, you know, improve technique in some areas. So I'll work on that for a couple of months and I'll, I'll sort of build my training around that. Um, or maybe I'm just, you know, maybe I'll want to run a triathlon next year or something. I'll start training for that. I don't know. Um, I think part of, for me, the enjoyment comes from actually just planning the training and, uh, and I, I get some, uh, I guess I'm a bit, I, I kind of like the, uh, the science of training and, and, uh, and periodization and cycling. And I think that stuff's pretty, pretty fascinating as well. So. Yeah, no, I love that too. And I find myself, I have a hard time staying motivated <laughs> with my training if I don't have a goal in mind or a competition or something I'm working towards. So, um, yeah, yeah no, I like that. Um, so this podcast, we talk about lifestyle medicine, we talk about nutrition and diet and all this, but I also like to bring in a little bit about sport performance and such. So I'm just wondering right. if you have any tips on like optimal sport performance or advice, like something you found to be beneficial in your own competing. Uh, Ooh, man, <laughs> my, my secret is probably just consistency. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I actually don't think I've really been that talented as an athlete ever. I mean, I never really attained very high levels in any of the sports I competed in, but I think it's just because I mentally, I probably pretty consistent and I've always trained regularly. Um, that being said, even when I, when I was probably most competitive and I was playing football, I wasn't that consistent. I didn't train at all. Actually. Uh, that was something that I sort of learned a little bit later. So I'd say that, um, if you really are interested in performance, the key is, is really, uh, first of all, in being consistent with your training, I think. And then after that, you start to build in, you know, the other aspects, I, I think, of your lifestyle, like your nutrition and your, your sleep and rest. Um, and you need to have a balance of those things. Uh, again, only just per speaking from personal experience, I think another pitfall that, that is, um, you know, that I've certainly dealt with in the past has been overtraining or overdoing it. And, um, as a, as sort of a, as a, as a lifestyle doc, somebody who coaches patient, my patients sometimes and helping them to get more active, I find there's two categories of people. One is sort of, you know, there's, there's one category of people that needs more motivation I find, and they need more incentive to be active. And then there's another sort of category of people who are actually need to understand how to how to slow down, to take more breaks, to pace themselves. Uh, and so I think you have to find that balance for yourself, but so you can't underdo it, but you can't overdo it too. So, uh, so, um, consistency and, and, uh, and if you're really competitive, then having a coach, you need to have a coach. I think that that's the person who's going to help you find that balance, give you the feedback that you need. 
So it's the work day in and day out to no magic bullet. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. No. So were you competing? I haven't found one yet. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, so you are a lifestyle medicine physician in Victoria, British Columbia. So we're throughout your training and your residency and even your practice now, how do you balance your training? Like, were you competing and training throughout your schooling or did you kind of pick that up afterward? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of my training in school, um, while I was in school, um, I was really just doing a lot of cycling and, and a lot of it was commuting. So that was, I would combine that into some days, you know, all I would really do, you know, if I, <clears throat> Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Montreal, but uh, there's a big mountain in the middle of Montreal, mountain. Uh, Mount <laughs> Royal is kind of like a big hill in the middle. It's a big park in the middle of the city. And McGill's on one end of the park. And where I did my residency was at the other end of the park at the Jewish hospital. So one of the things I would do is I would run over the mountain um, every day to get to my rotation. So I, you know, I would do a lot of stuff like that. Um, just sort of pack my bag full of stuff and just, uh, and just go for a long, uh, like a run or a, or a cycle or whatever. Um, and so that was sort of how I built it into my schedule during, uh, during residency. There were times when I'd get into a gym, uh, the McGill gym, um, but but I found that happened more towards the end when I had a little bit more time in my schedule and I uh, it was a little bit more forgiving. Uh, but there's just obviously there's going to be sometimes you know because surgery rotation it's going to be tough to you know I don't know if you're going to get up at three in the morning to train before you go to a six a.m. rotation. I don't know how that would work for you, but um, yeah, I think you just have to be really flexible if you're doing it and and. Uh, and, and definitely once I started, uh, once I got out of school, that gave me more flexibility to, and that was, that's sort of, for me, that's a big priority. So I've always made sure that my work schedule allows me time to train like I like to, and, and allows me enough time to rest and try to find that, that balance as much as possible. It's still a, you know, it's a work in progress, but. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good advice. I'm just about to enter my third year here. So that's when we start clerkship rotation. So I'm a little not sure how I'm going to balance the active lifestyle with the surgery rotation, like you mentioned, but I love the idea of just like working it in when you can, and it doesn't have to be an entire like 60 minute gym session. You just like get the exercise, get the movement in when you can. Yeah, that's right. And and just something else I would add is um, just sort of coming back to that idea of consistency and habits. I think I'm lucky in the sense that even before I got into school, I had a really I really had a routine of, you know, um, of doing something active every day. And it was just something part, I think I, I, I probably adapt that, adapted that habit without really knowing that that was really helpful for my mental health and stress management. And that without it, I just wouldn't have been able to sort of cope doing all the things that I was doing. So, so when I, when I finally got into medical school and then in residency, I was already, you know, every morning I would do 20 minutes of yoga and then I would, you know, kind of get on with, with everything else of my day. That was just part of my morning routine. And I still, to this day, have that same routine. I still get up and I have my little 20 minutes, sort of 15 to 20 minutes of, you know, um, fix my back and then stretch myself out and stuff like that. And even if I don't do anything else, that is a, is sort of like a consistent thing, part of my day. It's like brushing my teeth. 
Yeah. And, and I think it just, you develop that. And, and it's sometimes that people are like, oh, wow, you know, that must be tough. It's a lot of discipline. But I think that once you've done it enough times, and I'm sure you know this with any habit, it just gets easy and it becomes very natural and, and, uh, and you don't really make a big fuss out of it. You just kind of go and do it and, and something doesn't feel right if you don't do it. So um, it gets easier, I think. Yeah, that's huge. It's super good advice. Thank you for sharing all that. So I'd love to just talk briefly about how you even got into medicine in the first place. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if I chose medicine or if it chose me. <laughs> um, I think it was a bit of both. Um, there's definitely been a, um, a strong uh, higher education has been a huge, was a huge, is a huge value in my family and, and my dad and my grandfather, um, had a lot of uh, academic titles for sure. Not, not, neither of them were in medicine. Well, my, my mom's father was in medicine. Uh, but um, when I was originally going to school and I was uh, playing football, I was in phys ed and I was, so I was already interested in potentially going into the field in some form or another. I mean, wasn't sure exactly how my, I, my mindset was probably mostly focused on sports. Um, but eventually I sort of, when I, when, uh, when I left school, uh, in Manitoba, I, um, you know, started doing other things, working quite a lot and, and traveling and always interested in health. Um, I think I started to get interested, very interested in nutrition, um, as I started to understand how important training was, um, because I, I think I missed out a little bit on my um, you know, my football career, because I didn't really understand how to train. I didn't understand how important it was. So I sort of, uh, developed the interest in training and then I started to develop an interest in nutrition. Um, and you know, it's just sort of like a lot of small things that happened along the way, uh, that sort of pointed me in that, uh, that direction. I got a job in Montreal working in a health food store for many years. And there was a, um, the owner of the store was a public health doctor in her country in, in Vietnam and was also really well-versed in traditional medicine, uh, traditional Chinese medicine and other traditional uh, techniques in, from her tradition. And so she was actually teaching me a lot of stuff and sent me to um, some practitioners. And I just found all that really interesting. It was a whole different way of looking at health and medicine that I wasn't uh, previously exposed to. So that was sort of uh, opened some opened my mind a little bit, I would say. Uh, and I also met, uh, well, and, and so anyways, I, I think I just uh, got into my head that I would try to apply to medicine. And if it didn't work out, I thought, well, you know, I can, you know, maybe uh, try something like uh, nutrition or something along those lines. So I sort of had a plan B as well. But uh, I'm a pretty tenacious person. So even though I was refused a couple of times, I eventually, uh, they opened the door and let me in at McGill. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and yeah, I met some really interesting, uh, you know, I, I, I connected with some supervisors there that um, uh, one guy was a researcher and an internist, uh, Dr. John Hoffer, who did a lot of research on vitamins and uh, nutraceuticals. Uh, and so I worked in his lab for a while. Um, another practitioner there, Adam Gavsey, was a guy who had been doing uh, integrated practice of family medicine and integrative medicine, which is sort of uh, something that um, it's a school down in the States in Arizona. So he had done this sort of dual training and, uh, and he was very uh, 
who's kind of a mentor for me and, and somebody who was really interested in his work and had a very sort of, um, I guess, a holistic view. I mean, I really sort of, I don't know how else to say it. It's just sort of looking, trying to, trying to, looking less about the parts of the system and trying to figure out how they relate to each other and how they work together. And that to me was the most interesting thing. Um, and I always kept my interest in sort of complementary and alternative medicine, nutrition, um, all these different angles, which I felt had some role to play. I wasn't really sure how to fit them all together. Um, and, uh, and eventually, you know, I, I, I found lifestyle, which medicine, which really was sort of what I was doing anyways. And it, it just, uh, kind of brought all those elements together for me. Yeah. So can you, that's super, super cool. I love hearing people's journeys and how they get to where they are. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the lifestyle medicine clinic you're at right now? Yeah, sure. So, um, so we're now known as Aroga. We were Revive originally. Um, so it was a clinic founded by two internists, Jazz Deep Saluja and, and Jesse Puarchek in Victoria. Uh, I think it, they've started in, so we are 2021. I started in 2019. I think they started in 2017 or maybe 2018. I'm not entirely sure because I, I wasn't there from the beginning. <clears throat> but those two... Uh, those two docs were obviously very interested in the nutrition aspect and, and uh, I, they would have their own stories as to how they got into it, but obviously uh, very interesting. Um, and they were, they're both certified bariatric specialists as well. So they're seeing a lot of obesity, a lot of metabolic uh, disease. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, they both were just sort of said, you know, this is insane that we're sort of, we're not paying more attention to how much how important nutrition is in in managing diabetes and managing obesity you know why are we why is the starting point medications for these diseases we're, we're completely missing the whole how did these people get to this position in the first place and and so just i think that their perspective was like listen we need to sort of let's start let's start at the beginning here and, and, uh, and, and they opened up the clinic that was really focused on, on a started really mostly nutrition, but over, over the last three years, they've really evolved to sort of pick up specialists in different areas of lifestyle. Um, our latest, uh, sort of, um, colleague acquisition is a sleep specialist, uh, Dr. Laura McLean, and, and it's pretty fantastic to have her in the clinic. She's, um, so she takes care of the sleep pillar of lifestyle and we have, um, people doing we have a couple of docs doing mindfulness trainings and stress management and um i take care of the sports uh, well the uh the physical activity aspect um and we have some some dietitians there uh who, who we've integrated into the clinic really well so uh yeah that's sort of the evolution of the clinic and uh um and and so we we have you know we have quite a few internists working with us now um, either you know in person or or virtually, and uh, and and they all sort of have come to uh, lifestyle. I think on their through their own paths, and they all have a little bit of their own sort of spin on things, their own you know interests and and uh, and specialties and special interests that they bring. That's uh, that's valuable. So I think um, it's it's really nice that we have all those different perspectives. Yeah, I think Canada really needed an organization like Aroga, to be honest. Like there wasn't, to my knowledge anyway, there wasn't really um, a group of doctors doing what Aroga is doing now and with the lifestyle medicine and all the different pillars. And I think it's super important and I want to <laughs> love to help grow the message and get the information out to more people. 
I think they're they're they the way they've organized it and uh, and approached it. I think they've they've sort of got a, a a good approach, a solid approach. It's really evidence based, and uh, um, you know they do regularly cite guidelines that mention the role of lifestyle in managing these chronic diseases, and uh, and and so that's sort of um, you know we're well grounded. I think we're well grounded in the evidence, and and uh, and 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 it fits right in with sort of conventional you know, traditional medical practice. I don't think it's anything radical. You mentioned that exercise is kind of the pillar that your, I guess, your expertise is in, not that you don't do the other pillars, but it's a, it's a passion for you, obviously. So the phrase exercise is medicine or exercise as medicine is thrown around sometimes. I'm just wondering, what does this phrase really mean to you when you hear it? I think exercise as medicine is, is really just uh, a phrase that helps us put it in its proper context you know exercise is not something that is uh it's not an activity to be done just for leisure just for fun just for fitness just to look good just to get ready for the wedding or the beach um it's 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 something that we need to take a little bit more seriously in medicine in terms of its ability to address um, all kinds of medical conditions and its role. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's certainly not the only treatment for many things, although it could, it definitely plays a central role. Um, but it, it is, it, it is an integrative part of any, uh, chronic disease, pretty much any chronic disease, uh, treatment, I would say. Um, but in that sense, I think if we approach it from our sort of, you know, Con conventional allopathic medical perspective, we want to think about, well, what is a medicine? Okay. So we think of a medicine as maybe being a pharmaceutical and therefore um, it's something that has a dose in terms of an amount. Um, it has uh, um, a concentration or an intensity. Um, it has a duration for how long we want to prescribe it um, and how frequently it has to be dosed. So all those um, all those variables, I think, are relevant to exercise as well. And if we approach it that way, I think we actually can make better use of exercise or physical activity as a medicine because uh, and I, I you know and I talk a lot about the dose because the dose is very important and it's very individual. And so I think also using that language makes it more accessible for practitioners uh, who may think that they don't have the expertise or the uh, the skills to prescribe medicine, uh, which is uh, which is something I really uh, feel strongly about that I want other practitioners to feel like they can, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I'm doing this in this clinic and, and, uh, and as a consultant, but I, you know, I don't, don't think what I'm doing is necessarily all that special. That's not something any other practitioner couldn't do. Um, I think it's pretty straightforward. I think it's just, again, you know, thinking about it in these terms, you know, intensity, dose, duration, you know, frequency, and, and then, uh, and then matching it up for the patient's needs. Yeah. yeah. I, I think at the end of this, maybe we'll round it out a little bit with like how you actually go through and maybe have an example, how you'd prescribe exercise to a patient. But before we maybe get into that, um, can we just maybe talk about the benefits of exercise for like reducing mortality or some of the um, specific details or like where you think it's most beneficial? Yeah, sure. So I was sort of, I went through your, the notes that you had sent me and, and I did, uh, you know, grab a couple of tidbits from some presentations that I had done previously. Um, um, so yeah, I guess, you know, if you're, if you're wondering about the benefits, there's, 
a mountain of evidence out there. Okay, so so it's it's um, it's almost overwhelming how much evidence is out there. And the interesting thing is, is that studies continue to come out looking at the benefits of getting the uh, recommended amounts of physical activity per per week. Like this has been over ten to fifteen years of of evidence that continues to come out. Um, and, and it's pretty consistent, you know, um, which I think, you know, is, is interesting. Uh, but for, you know, for in terms of mortality, I think you can generally say that um, it looks like it's, it's like about a 20 to 25 percent decrease in mortality for those who are who are meeting guidelines uh, for most uh, for most adults. Um, <clears throat> so um, and in terms of general risk reduction for most chronic diseases it's probably around 30 percent uh reduction in in the 30 to 50 percent i've even heard up to risk reduction for most chronic diseases um that's uh, a number that's used um for diabetes uh, for sure so so maybe before we get a bit further so what types of exercise are we talking about here is this like we're saying meeting guidelines and we can even get into that a little bit more but are we generally talking aerobic exercise resistance training or just general like physical activity and movement yeah so so the majority of the uh evidence uh for exercise uh in in reduction of mortality and and chronic disease reduction is is looking at exercise that meets the guidelines so that's uh generally speaking 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic activity uh so so that's the type of exercise that the vast majority of papers are looking at unless they're sort of specifying otherwise uh most guidelines now specify adding resistance training in as well to meet the guidelines for at least twice uh, a week and so uh, but but I would say the vast majority of of, of what's out there in terms of evidence is, is looking at uh, is aerobic activity. So that's you know walking, running, cycling, swimming. Yeah. Perfect. And so it's more. It's not necessarily the, like so we're in the class of aerobic activity. It's not necessarily like you don't have to run, you don't have to bike. People can be doing whatever activity they enjoy as long as generally they're getting their heart rate up into a certain range. Is that kind of fair? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's a really important point, actually, Cassandra, is that there's really no perfect exercise. There's no ideal exercise. Uh, you know, um, the majority of evidence shows that most exercise, most movement that gets the heart rate up is, is going to count. Um, there was a recent, uh, I just reviewed um, uh, a systematic review put out by the Cochrane Collaboration for looking at walking walking and hypertension and even walking at 150 minutes a week has significant uh, effect on blood pressure. So, it, so really it, it is whatever works for the person. And I think that's kind of where probably where the art of the prescribing medicine comes in a little bit is that you really want to find out um, what works for the patient. And I think that that's good news because it really allows for people to um, choose a little bit, it allows them some flexibility for what works in their uh, particular uh, life and their lifestyle, whether it's, you know, whether all they can do is just step out the, out the door and walk or whether they have access to a gym or if they have any sort of equipment at home, any of the things that they want to use uh, are going to work. And if they have specific physical limitations or, or other um, whatever it is, social, financial, 
um, all those kinds of barriers that come up, we can address those and we can find ways around them. And we can find an exercise that's going to work and it's going to do something for them. Yeah, that's great. I think that's very important for people to hear because sometimes when people hear, oh, they need to exercise, they have this very, they they, they think they have to be out jogging every day and it's it can be tailored to so many different like individuals. Um, so yeah. super important. Um, that's right, so yeah. I just, maybe we'll just tackle the guidelines right now. So you mentioned 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week is, mm-hmm. or those are the guidelines we have in Canada. So what would you consider moderate to vigorous to be? I think intensity is is um, that's a variable that that we want to think about if we're ever prescribing uh, exercise. Um, so typically moderate. So there's different ways of measuring exercise intensity. So you could measure your heart rate, right? So that's sort of uh, a little bit more objective. <clears throat> well, that's that's sort of the classic objective measure is is looking at heart rate. Moderate intensity is considered to be about sixty five to seventy five percent of your maximum heart rate. And by maximum, you can just use the old school calculation two twenty minus your age, uh, and then you take sixty five to seventy five percent of that. So, but the most the vast majority of people are not monitoring their heart rate, so they can use the talk test, right? Which is if you're uh, if you're active enough that you're breathing a little harder, your um, heart rate is coming up, maybe you're even breaking a bit of a sweat, but you can still have a conversation with the person next to you, that's about the right pace. Once you're uh, breathing so hard that you can't hold a proper conversation, then that's probably a bit too fast. Um, if you're singing songs and reciting poetry, that's not fast enough. Okay. Um, and then, you know, and then there's something else that sometimes I use and that's used a lot, uh, in sports training or, or performance training is this uh, RPE scale, which is the rate of perceived exertion. So that's just a scale of one to 10, where sort of one is just sitting, maybe scrolling on your phone and 10 is like, uh, you know, a maximum sprint uphill. And, uh, and again, moderate intensity would put you somewhere between a four and a six uh, on that scale. And then the last is sort of the objective measures that are used in research for intensity, and that would be a metabolic equivalent of task or METs, right? And those are mostly used in research, and they're um, they're really sort of hard to wrap your head around in terms of what they actually mean. And you need a chart with exercises and their MET values to really be able to. Um, you know, get a sense of, of intensity from METs. But I usually use a talk test with people, um, sometimes an RPE scale. Um, I have a printout of an RPE scale with all different the numbers of what it feels like at each number. And I can give that to people and, and they can, can use that. I use something like that personally. I've used that um, at different points in my own training. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's like super helpful actually. So in terms of like the 150 minutes, is there like a minimum you have to do at once or is 10 minutes at once? If that, if you're kind of reaching, do you kind of know what I'm asking? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so the the evidence doesn't show there is really a minimum. So any amount of activity is good, good activity. So if you look at the sort of classic dose response curves that are used to create the guidelines, there's no threshold at which you start to see decreases in mortality or chronic disease progression or any of these things. It happens right away. As soon as you start going from zero to one, you're starting to see some benefits. So, um, so I think that that's one thing. The other thing is that it's additive. So, um, you know, if you're aiming for 150 minutes a week, if you get 10 minutes one day and then you get 50 minutes 
later in the day, that's 60 minutes for your day. Or if you do, you know, 15 minute walk in the morning, 15 minute walk in the evening, um, and you do that five times a week, that's your 150 minutes. So I usually tell people though, just, you know, I think, again, it really depends on the person. For some people, the important thing is just to start uh, and to get a habit going. And for those people, I say, you know, you may even just want to, you know, get out. Some people, they just need to do like, you know, literally, it's like the the two minute test. They just need to get out there and do walk to the end of their driveway and back. Because the important thing for some people is just to get start the habit you know and and get and and to do something that's going to be accomplished that can be um you know very easily kind of comp- accomplished and then they can start to get that feeling of accomplishment so so yeah i think it depends i usually probably 10 minutes is probably your ideal minimum i would say um but but again if somebody is really going from zero they're inactive i think that it's totally um it, it's totally permissible to to just start with like 2 or 3 minutes yeah. So it's, um, it's know. again about building that consistency habit and just like getting the momentum going. And yeah, you don't, if you can't reach 150 minutes, that's okay. Like the more, the better. Right. Yeah. And so again, like maybe this is a little bit more of the art of it all. Um, I really, so I'm a big fan of sort of these, uh, behavioral scientists like BJ Fogg. And, um, I recently read the book by James Clear, Atomic Habits. And I think the message in most of what most of these guys are saying is pretty clear that, um, if you really want to start a habit, you have to start small. You have to start with small doses. And I, and I think that that's a great approach, you know, especially for people who tend to get overwhelmed when they think about starting a new lifestyle habit. Oh, I have to change all this. And how am I going to do this? And, you know, they kind of let their mind get away with all the um, sort of all the big changes and the grand gestures they're going to have to do. But I think that um, that when we start with these really tiny bits, and when they hear it from a physician, it makes it, um, they almost feel relieved sometimes that, that that's all they need to do. And, and, and they'll progress from there. Um, I think it's important that you start that little seed and then you start watering it. Just plant the seed. No, that's great. It's yeah. a good approach. And um, I think it's, yeah, again, it makes it like so much more accessible to people and it's not as intimidating. Um, so I'd like to jump back again. So we kind of talked about the reduction in mortalities, which is like, um, risk of all cause death, basically, um, death from all causes, sorry. And I'd like to touch on specifically cardiovascular disease. Um, because I've, I watched you give a presentation on this once, um, two medical students, and it was, it's, I found it super fascinating how you were comparing the effects of like ex- an exercise intervention to, um, like a blood pressure lowering drug and showing like yeah. how it was quite comparable. I would just love if you could touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So, so that, um, so there was one study that I'm aware of. It's a that was that was a network network meta analysis. So so that's not a direct comparison of drugs to exercise. It's an indirect comparison. So so I don't know if you're familiar with those research techniques, but a network meta analysis um, is sort of a it's kind of a a, a technique, a, a methodology to compare uh, two things that have never really been gone have never really gone head to head in a trial. So we can um, use these sort of indirect ways of comparing them uh, in order to, to get a sort of a, a most likely scenario. So there was a group of uh, researchers who looked at uh, physical activity and compared that to, to typical antihypertensives. Uh, and, uh, and basically what they showed is, is that for people who have hypertension, exercise is about the same as medications. There's no clear advantage of using medication uh, in terms of the magnitude of effect on blood pressure. 
Um, I do believe that for the interesting thing uh, was that in a general population, medication's probably better than uh, than exercise in terms of, of the magnitude. But for hypertensive patients or people with higher blood pressure, once the blood pressure gets higher, the effect of exercise is greater. So then you start to see more of a comparable effect between um, exercise and medications. And, and that net network meta-analysis has also been applied to uh, mortality as well and, and, uh, and, and made similar kind of um, comparisons for mortality and chronic diseases. So hypothetically, if someone is on a blood pressure medication, would they have a chance of like weaning off that if they were to increase their exercise appropriately? Yeah. Just one of the thing I would add is that, that, you know, we have the network meta-analyses, which mm -hmm. are doing these indirect comparisons, but we also know, we also have a lot of data that show the magnitude of effect of, ex of exercise on blood pressure. So for example, I was, I was talking about this Cochrane review we did for uh, walking. So walking, you could expect just from walking 150 minutes to get about four to six millimeters of mercury reduction in your systolic blood pressure. And that's pretty consistent for most cardiovascular exercise. You can get up to eight millimeters of mercury reduction in your systolic pressure. And just for comparison, Ramipril gives you about eight as well. So we know that in terms of the numbers as well, they're also very comparable. Um, but again, it's like, you know, we, we want to make sure people really have to sort of get that dose. They really have to get that 150 minutes. Uh, and so, okay. so just keeping that in mind. Yeah. And uh, what about resistance training? How does that fit in here? Because I've, I've heard some people say before that like resistance training can actually increase your blood pressure. Um, but is that, that's more acutely is my understanding. Certainly, if you're lifting a, like a big heavy, if you're doing a big heavy deadlift, your, your blood pressure is going to spike mm -hmm. immensely, right? And and uh, and actually, I was just having this debate with another guy <laughs> online who was clearly either a, either a, a like a physiologist or a doctor, uh, and we were talking about why some people pass out after they deadlift or lift a heavy weight. And it's probably because your intra-abdominal pressure goes up so high that it stimulates your carotid sinus. Well, this is part of the mechanism. There's probably multiple mechanisms, but but I, that's interesting to think that your blood pressure goes so high in your carotid arteries that your sinus, your carotid sinus, is, is, can be triggered in some people, and you get a um, you get a vasovagal, and you pass out. So yeah, there's there's probably a huge spike in in a, in resistance training in your blood pressure, but but that's really similar with any um, exercise. And if you've ever done a treadmill test on somebody, you're going to see the blood pressure spike up pretty high. Um, but I think the key is what happens afterwards, right? So we know that for several hours after exercise, there's a big dip in your blood pressure. And that can last for, um, you know, three or four hours to up to 12 plus hours, I believe, after, after um, exercise. So it's almost like there's a recovery period, like a dip. Um, so that's um, so that's one thing. And then obviously, the more consistent you are with your exercise, um, that persists over time. And you, you were asking about resistance, so I'm going to try to stick to that. Um, so uh, yeah, so so resistance training also reduces uh, blood pressure as well. And, and just sort of uh, checking up on this, uh, um, there was a um, a recent paper in the uh, Journal of the American Hypertension Association in 2013, which compared different types of exercise and their impact on, um, on blood pressure. So you had cardiovascular exercise, uh, dynamic resistance training, um, and isometric resistance training, which is, uh, you know, where you're holding your muscles. Planks and such. 
Right, exactly. So you're not actually changing the angle of your joint. You're not actually moving. You're just holding contraction. So of all those exercises, actually, they found that isometric training had the greatest effect on blood pressure. It was over 10 millimeters of mercury. Now, um, you know, there was, I think there was the least number of studies. So it was a sort of a small, um, a small N that was contributing to that. But, um, but it's interesting to note that um, maybe there's something about, and, and probably isometric uh, you know, isometric resistance training, I would assume also creates the, the, the largest acute spike in blood pressure too, uh, because of that Valsalva that happens. And, um, you know, that bearing down effect that you can get when you're contracting a muscle really hard. So I don't know, maybe there's a relationship, but between that acute spike and then the, uh, the dipping that happens afterwards. But anyways, a bottom line is that uh, resistance training works too. That's awesome. Super interesting. Um, I love this. Uh, so that's high blood pressure is obviously the main risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Um, one of the other main ones is like, um, high cholesterol, high LDL cholesterol. I'm, I'm not sure. Are you aware of any research showing that exercise can lower like lipids? Yeah, there's a little bit of uh, research out there looking at biomarkers like, uh, you know, like cholesterol and blood sugar, um, you know, CRP, things like that. Uh, and, and it's all pretty positive. Um, I focus less on that kind of research. Um, I'm a little less interested in markers and biomarkers. I think what's more important is, Mm -hmm. you know, we do, I think it's important to show that what, that if we're going to spend time, you know, it's kind of a paradox. I think if we're going to spend time counseling patients on exercise and, and, uh, and, and focusing a lot of energy on it. We want to show that it does something. And, and if it's going to improve blood pressure, if it's going to improve blood sugar, then that's good. I think that, you know, that it gives us some legitimacy that, um, you know, helps our colleagues, convince our colleagues, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe one day it'll, con- <laughs> it'll convince uh, MSP in BC or, or whoever the, the provincial government is to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to allow us to bill more for counseling lifestyle. But, but I think what's most important is, is sort of the patient important outcomes of quality of life, uh, mortality benefits or heart outcomes are also good. Obviously those are a lot harder to show in studies, but I think if you can show improvements in qualities of life, um, in terms of either mood or energy or pain or function or whatever other things that matter to patients. I think it's a little easier to get patients on board with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also feel that that's sort of what matters most to people, tends to matter most to people. Some people are very also very interested in the numbers too. Um, and I think that's part of the, the culture in medicine. Um, and I don't know that that's always the right approach, but that's just my sort of personal feeling on that. Yeah, no, fair. Um, can we touch on diabetes quickly? Um, because I know there's some research, I think, showing that um, exercise can reduce uh, blood sugar. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm not exactly, I'm not as familiar as, as sort of the uh, the quantity that we can expect, but uh, we know a fair amount about what's pretty interesting about diabetes. We know a fair amount about the mechanism of how exercise helps with the uh, with diabetes. So as you know, that, you know, um, glucose uptake occurs by sort of passive and active mechanisms and the active mechanism is the insulin driven mechanism and, and, um, exercise helps primarily with the passive uptake of glucose. 
So by exercising more, you get an instant increase in your glucose transporters to the cell surface of the muscle cells. And so obviously that's going to help um, bring a lot of sugar out of the blood vessels and into the, the muscles. So I tell patients that this is something, you know, explaining to them that how this works, I think that it helps them um, feel that there's something that they're going to do by doing the exercise. It's going to help them manage their blood sugar. And certainly... Uh, there are acute effects of exercise on blood sugar, um, but there are also, and those are the effects, obviously, of the metabolism just getting ramped up and the uh, and the demand for energy in the moment. But then there's these longer term effects, like increasing amounts of mitochondria and the muscle tissue. Um, I think there's some evidence and some argument that uh, there's some mitochondrial dysfunction in diabetes. So there's sort of a problem with uh, basically energy utilization at the level of the mitochondria that's going on. And that exercise reverses this quite rapidly by improving the efficiency of the mitochondria and improving the number of the mitochondria in the muscle tissue. So that's another thing. And then you also add to that, you're increasing the, uh, you know, the amount of uh, the receptors for glucose on the, on the cell surface. So you've got a lot of ways by which now we're we're starting to move glucose and it's getting to get, it's coming out of the bloodstream, it's getting used, it's getting, um, you know, it's going to where it needs to go. So I think that's, uh, that's pretty important. Um, and, and something else I was going to say as well is that, you know, we have to be, that's something even, you know, just, just thinking about the clinically, what that means is that some patients, for example, diabetic patients on insulin, you have to be very careful with their insulin, uh, if they're exercising a lot, because they can get quite hypoglycemic uh, if they're on insulin and, and diabetic, because that effect is so rapid and so um, intense. So, um, yeah. And then just one other thing I was going to add to that too is that um, there's a lot of research now looking at the um, the negative impact of of sedentary behavior. And interestingly enough. Um, just uh, breaking up sedentary behavior seems to be enough to, to, to mitigate those negative effects. And that could just be standing up and kind of shaking yourself out, you know, for a couple of minutes every hour or so. Um, but what happens when we do that, interestingly enough, is there's almost like a, an instant increase in our, um, in our, some of our muscles ability to, to uptake blood sugar. And it's these postural muscles sort of in our, in our thighs and in our back. And those muscles become instantly active when we stand. So all you really have to do is stand. And that actually, um, there's been some pretty interesting studies that have shown, um, when you break up sitting, and I, I'm not quite sure how long they had them stand for, it may have been six or, or so minutes per hour, um, that, and they did this with diabetics, that it showed significant decreases in their, in their fasting sugars and their A1C when this was done over a period of a few weeks. And there was no exercise. It was just uh, breaking up sitting. That's so, um, that's that's so cool, actually. That's actually, that is something I wanted to get into a bit more is the, the risks of uh, sedentary behavior and sitting. So someone could be going to the gym 60 minutes a day, five days a week, active that way. But if they're sitting eight hours a day, are they still at risk from their sitting? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's definitely uh, seems to be uh, a negative impact of sitting that that uh, can't be overcome by 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 getting the guidelines. So even if you're getting the recommended amounts of physical activity, if you're sitting for eight hours or more, you still have an elevated risk of 
cardiovascular disease, uh, early mortality uh, uh, versus those who are not sitting for eight plus hours a day. Um, and I believe that you have to get um, a, like, a, like a, a fantastic amount of exercise to, uh, to uh, overcome that negative effect. It's something like 33 met hours a week, which is like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's over 200 minutes uh, of, of uh, moderate or vigorous activity per week. Um, and, uh, and I actually did a, a little self-experiment to see if I could get that amount of physical activity a week, if I was getting that amount. And even with my training, you know, five days a week, I was doing like CrossFit three times a week, a CrossFit class, plus my own thing. It was pretty tough to get 33 met hours a week. That's, you know, you have to be doing an hour and a half of intense exercise every day. That's uh, a lot. Yeah. And that's out, that's just to, to, um, you know, to, to cancel out that, that sitting. So. Yeah, so that it's really important, not just so. So for that reason, and you see in the Canadian guidelines now, there's also not only recommendations for you know your minimum amount of um, MVPA, but also a minimal amount of of sitting time per day, so eight hours or less, ideally. And if and I always tell people if you're gonna if you're you know especially now with COVID, people are working from home and they're on their computers you got to set a timer or something and you got to get up, you know, you can't be sitting there tranced out in front of your screen for two hours. You got to get up and, and, and just move to the other room, you know, or if you're phone on a phone call, stand up and walk around. Um, those things make a difference. Yeah. That's super important to bring up. So um, the study that you were talking about where they just stood up and they had the benefits to their um, blood glucose. Uh, I can't remember what you said. Was it every 20 minutes they were standing or. Uh yeah, so that that one, to be honest with you, I'd have to take a quick look at um, at at, uh, at my um, yeah, no worries papers to sort of get the numbers. But it was it was uh, it, they actually had because they had to sort of they, they made it a protocol. So I think they had it. I think it was about six minutes of standing and uh, and a little bit of walking, but it was very very low intensity, like sort of you know like less than than one point five mets, which is you know. Um, that's just like standing and walking to another room kind of thing. Okay. So it's very low intensity. So I'm curious. I actually have a standing desk and I feel bad because I'm sitting right now. I should be standing. But um, what are your thoughts on, I guess, standing desks would be beneficial then? And then are you a fan of uh, like treadmill desks or something like that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think that, you know, touching on this idea of, you know, the importance of these postural muscles and how they kind of have like an on off switch. As soon as we're standing, we're burning a lot more calories. And I think somebody even, uh, that's even been looked at too. And I believe it's like three or four times as many calories when you're standing as when you're sitting. Um, and that's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. And that's probably just from those muscles that need to hold you up. Um, so, so it definitely makes a difference, uh, in terms of, you know, in theory and calorie burning. Um, and we know that, you know, you know, and the other thing that we know is for example, um, we know that in cultures and societies where people do a lot more manual work and they, they generally sit a lot more. So this huge amount of sitting that we do is mostly sort of a Western industrialized phenomenon. When you look at other countries that are less developed, um, they have a lot uh, lower risk of a lot of these metabolic conditions. Um, and a lot of it is likely because of the amount of sort of what we would call non-exercise physical activity. You know, they're just walking, you know, they walk to work or they, um, their work involves labor of some kind. Um, they're always on their feet. They're always moving. Um, and so I think it makes a difference. And, 
And I know that the College of Lifestyle Medicine, you know, endorses things like treadmills, uh, treadmill desks, uh, standing desks. I love standing desks. I have one at work and I like to go up and down. Um, another thing that's getting really popular are these pedal machines that people are putting underneath their desks, like a, like a QB or something along those lines. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, that's a reasonable idea too. You know, just keep, if anything's kind of keeping blood flow going and, and it gives people um, a sense of, of, of activity and accomplishment, um, which if anything else, even that in itself, I think is, is worthwhile. You know, if people feel, people need to feel like they're, the other important aspect, I think, and this sort of applies to all of, of, of lifestyle medicine is that people need to feel like um, they need to understand when they're putting effort in, because a lot of people tend to either under, underestimate or minimize, or they don't even acknowledge what they are doing. And so it's just in terms of sort of um, psychologically motivating people, I think it's important for people to, to acknowledge what they're doing. And, if, and it means, you know, peddling their little cubie under the desk. Hey, I did that, you know, I did that every day for the last week, you know, great. You know, that is a win, you know, and, and I think it needs to be acknowledged. That's huge. Um, yeah. So we've, we've touched on so many different benefits of physical activity and exercise from like, uh, the mortality, blood pressure, um, blood glucose, diabetes. I'd like to touch quickly on kind of some of the mood disorders. Um, so like depression and anxiety, what have you, like, have you noticed benefits in your clinic? Or are you aware of any research? Um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a pretty big body of evidence looking at the impact of physical activity on depression. <clears throat> Uh, and I think we can, we can clearly say from the evidence that there's a significant impact on, uh, physical activity on, on depression in terms of improving symptoms and preventing, uh, recurrence of depressive episodes. Um, so yeah, so, and, and really that's at any level of physical activity again. So that seems to be sort of falling in line with what we sort of know about mortality and chronic disease is that any amount is, is seems to be helpful. Um, there's been a Cochrane review done in 2013 um, that showed a significant uh, effect of, of depression uh, or sorry, of, of physical activity on, on depression. Um, clinically, what I've seen, um, I, I recommend it as certainly as a, as a fundamental um, part of, of managing mental, uh, mental illness. Uh, now I'm talking about sort of more typical primary care presentations of depression, anxiety, you know, I'm not talking about schizophrenia or bipolar or more severe episodes. Um, but even still, my perspective is that it still needs to be incorporated. Uh, but, you know, for example, many people who sort of um, may come in with an episode uh, and, and it, you know, maybe they're going through an acute life stressor, um, if they're not being physically active, that's the first thing they need to do, in my opinion, because um, that can be enough. And, and I've certainly seen many people who have, um, who have the only, who are chronically depressed and, and the only time they ever really feel like they're coming out of it is when they're exercising. And that's just from my own sort of personal, uh, personal anecdote, I guess. I definitely, I certainly can think of a couple of patients who, who that's the case. And they, then they, they now recognize that, um, you know, when we talk about sort of building kind of, we talk about mental hygiene and sort of building, um, building for yourself a routine that kind of maintains your mental health exercise is sort of really, that's the, the fundamental part of, of that, I think. And, and that's a key part of mental hygiene in general. So for those who have mental illness and also for those who, who are just trying to prevent, you know, depression, anxiety, or even just burnout, 
um, which would apply to physicians or anybody in the medical profession or, or anybody who's even functioning at a high level, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, would have a hard time, um, <clears throat> you know, telling somebody that, that they didn't need to exercise uh, for those for, in those situations. Yeah, I agree. I can, I feel like anyone who exercises can speak from personal experience, how much it benefits us mentally. Like I know I always feel, even if I don't feel like exercising at the start, I always feel better after. And I think, I think that's something that like, I I worked as a personal trainer um, before I got into med school, actually. So I think that was one thing I talked um, to uh, some of my clients about is like, it's even if you don't feel like exercising at first, if you're, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you're not feeling great, try and remember how you'll feel afterward and use that as motivation to get started because yeah, yeah, you usually don't regret a workout. No, that's right. Yeah. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think you really have to also get people to focus on the mental psychological benefits sometimes because with exercise, um, the unfortunate thing about lifestyle is that it's an investment upfront and usually the, the return comes later as opposed to sort of some of like the bad habits, like, you know, smoking or drug use or other, you know, addictive behaviors there's an immediate benefit and an immediate return, right? So you have to find some kind of hook, something to get people interested in. And, uh, and yeah, if it's that sort of little emotional high that you get, that, 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 that good mood that you get for a couple hours afterwards, then that's probably the most immediate benefit you can expect from exercise. Yeah. Um, it's funny. We've talked, we've been talking for about an hour now and we haven't mentioned uh, weight loss once as a benefit of exercise. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. all these benefits we've talked about, they can come independent of weight loss is my understanding. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I would, I would agree with you there. I, I think, uh, and that's another important part, I think, to sort of convey to patients as well is that um, <clears throat> they may not expect a lot of weight loss. And in fact, I tell patients, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect weight loss, actually, if you're suddenly starting to become more active and you're making dietary changes. If it's somebody that's quite inactive and they start resistance training, they'll actually build a significant amount of muscle tissue initially and their body composition might change a lot. So we need to sort of shift their perspective away from weight, I think, uh, in general. And I think there's lots of other reasons why we might want to do that. Um, I think it's probably overemphasized. Obviously, it's overemphasized probably in the media and and generally in our culture, but also even in medical culture. And I think, you know, if you look at last year's um, obesity guidelines, they sort of acknowledge the degree to which, you know, medical culture is sort of um, overly sort of overly focused on on weight as a as an outcome. Um, so, so yeah, I think that we don't want to focus too much on it um, as an outcome, but uh, uh, but it, it, it certainly helps. Obviously, we know that that exercise helps people maintain weight loss better than uh, better than just diet alone, um, you know. And it's uh, it's an important part of of, uh, of management of, of obesity and, and yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that so well. Um, so I'd like to, you obviously prescribe exercise to your patients that come see you. So I'd love to get into that a little bit more. We've touched on it, but um, some of my listeners are healthcare professionals. So maybe just to start, um, how do you integrate like your exercise prescriptions and exercise counseling into your daily practice? 
Uh, well, there's there's probably a couple of ways. I'm lucky enough to work in this lifestyle clinic where I can I can do a consultation where I'll focus only on an exercise assessment and prescription. So that's a 20 minute appointment that I will do with patients that uh, is by referral. So there's that. So that's something that we've created at Aroga at our clinic um, for that specific purpose. But there's still an opportunity to do it in a sort of typical um, family practice setting, I would say. Um, I think you need, uh, I think you have to think about, um, you know, you want to think about sort of how much time you're going to sort of dedicate to that. I would say probably 10 to 15 minutes would be uh, enough. Um, So, yeah, it really depends on the situation. I have, you know, my own patients in my practice. And for those patients, you know, like it can be sort of a longitudinal conversation if you want, where, you know, I might bring it up and sort of assess kind of their, their stage of change. I think you, you have to be a little smart about it. If you're going to do it in a family practice, a busy family practice, you really want to be opportunistic and and get people when they're ready. Um, So, um, you know, most organizations who advocate for exercise prescriptions say you should be assessing physical activity at every visit. So that's like, you know, your physical activity vital signs, you know, um, uh, are you regularly, regularly physically active, uh, getting some moderate intensity cardiovascular exercise every week? And if you are, how many minutes are you getting? So if you can ask that question, then it will kind of hopefully lead into a conversation where you get an idea of where the patient's at and and you can sort of assess uh, their stage of change perhaps. And if you feel that that's something that they're interested in, or if they're ready to hear about it, then you kind of can, you know, we may want to talk about them a little bit and say, listen, you know, uh, you know, that, that getting 150 minutes a week is going to reduce your blood pressure by just about as much as taking this Ramipril every day. So, you know, if you're interested in coming off the medication, um, you know, we just need to get you started on an, on some kind of physical activity program that you can do uh, on a regular basis. And, uh, and that's a completely doable outcome. That's a, that's a goal. Um, so you want to spin it in a way that kind of has some meaning for them. Um, again, though, when my exercise consultation, I'm lucky enough to have a little bit more time to spend with patients so I can do sort of a proper assessment. Uh, I can, uh, counsel them a little bit and make some individualized recommendations, uh, offer them resources, even refer them out to exercise professionals. If I feel like that's something that would benefit them. Uh, and then, uh, and then I can also follow them up as well, organize a follow-up for them. Yeah, yeah, no, you you are lucky you have so much time to spend with patients. I think that's probably one of the greatest limitations for most doctors out there. Um, but let's say someone wants to prescribe their patients some exercise. What are the key components that they should be including? Yeah, so I think the the first the first is you just want to assess. So I would say assessment and then the individualized sort of recommendation and then your follow-up. Those are sort of one, two, three. Mm-hmm. Um the assessment is sort of twofold. You want to assess their sort of motivation stage of change. You also want to assess their medical sort of status. You know, um, you want to look for any potential um, uh, risks that they might carry that might uh, impact their ability to be active. So obviously you want to screen out for any risk of, uh, of acute, uh, acute cardiac events. Um, people with, uh, with cardiovascular or pulmonary uh, disease really should be having a, a more of a, a medical workup. 
Um, so you want to assess them for risk. Also, I think also just sort of understanding what their uh, goals are and what their uh, conditions are, if they have um, other conditions that might affect their ability to exercise, like chronic pain, osteoarthritis, um, if they have, uh, you know, neurologic conditions that might affect their balance, uh, metabolic conditions that, you know, like diabetes, obviously, if they're on insulin, you want to take note of that. Um, so there's certain medications that will have an impact on people's ability to be physically active, um, positive or negative. Um, and so that's sort of um, something that I would do in a, in a more detailed um, assessment. And then, and then the next part is that once you sort of, you know, figured that you've got a green light to go ahead and, and prescribe this person some exercise, um, you know, finding something that works for them, like we were talking about earlier, something that works with their lifestyle, um, and that's sort of, you know, I think that's just, uh, a little bit of an exploration with some suggestions. And I think the important thing is that you want to come to an agreement with the patient. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, we're sort of, I think the idea is to move a little bit away from this, away from this idea of, you know, we do say exercise prescription, but really it's a commitment. It's an agreement. That's what it really is. So really what it, what I want is the patient to tell me, yes, I think I can go swimming at the pool down by my, you know, in my neighborhood for half an hour, three times a week. And then I want them to make that commitment. And then I'm going to tell them, listen, we're going to write this down on paper and this is your prescription. So you can put that somewhere so you can see that. And it's really just like a, a device to help them stay, um, you know, stay on track, if anything, I think. So, um, so there's that. And then, and then, you know, I think it's, you know, and then part of the exercise, the exercise consultation that I do, I sort of decide whether this person might get help from seeing somebody in person and some people who, uh, you know, they may need a bit of coaching because, you know, you know, maybe they've got some osteoarthritis, uh, or they've got, uh, you know, they've, they've, uh, even if they've had a stroke or they have neurological conditions that might affect their balance or their ability to do certain movements. I want somebody who's an, a trained professional to look at those people, assess their movement, and then be able to modify exercises accordingly and to give them a program that they can follow. Um, that's not something that I do, although I'm hoping to develop sort of a more, an online exercise program, a group visit that I can do with people who have some of these conditions and show them a, and sort of discuss things like modifying exercises and, and also talk a little bit about the psychology of, of remaining physically active with chronic disease. Uh, but anyways, that's uh, something that's sort of uh, on the pipe in the pipeline for me. Yeah, that would be super cool to get going. I think there, this whole uh, pandemic's taught us all about the value of like uh, some of the virtual and the online stuff. It can be super beneficial and super accessible for people. Um, yeah, yeah. So when you're when you're prescribing your exercise, I've heard of uh, the FIT principle before. So frequency, mm. intensity, time, type. Is that something that you use or? Yeah, yeah. So that I think that's a, a good uh, a good framework. So I guess you know if if we sort of want to break it down into kind of uh, give it more like of a recipe, it's you want to assess the patient and, and you do the physical activity vital signs, um, and and then and then you do a little bit of a risk assessment and decide on whether they 
may need to have a medical clearance or not. And once you sort of move past that stage and you're working on the exercise prescription part, then that's when you incorporate the, the, the FITT, the fit. So the frequency, the intensity, the timing, and the type of exercise, those are the four variables that you want to decide on with a patient. I like to add this SMART goal principle in there. So S-M-A-R-T, right? So specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time-bound. Um, and it's so it becomes a SMART fit goal. Um, and that's just because I feel that this, we want to focus again on making attainable goals for the patient. The, the patient is going to, we want goals that are going to lead to improvements in self-efficacy, improvements in self-confidence, not the other way around. We don't want patients to feel like they're um, every week they're having a hard time meeting their goals or they're not meeting their goals, which I feel is really not, that's not what we want. Uh, that's not the outcome we want. We don't want discouragement or disappointment. And we, we have enough of the, most of the patients that I see have enough of that you know, at baseline in terms of their, their self-confidence about exercising. So I think building self-efficacy is really important. The smart part of that goal setting, I think, helps us, um, helps us determine that. It also allows, it helps me to um, get them to initiate, to, to get them to, to say what they you know, what they think they can do, you know, like, well, what do you feel like is reasonable next week? What do you think that you, if I said to you, you know, listen, I want you to get started next week. What, what exercise would you pick? You know, and then, oh, you know, like I'm already walking. I'd probably just walk. I just pick something around walking or I really want to go to the pool, you know, whatever. Um, sometimes our goals are, you know, you have to go down to the rec center and get a schedule, you know, and it might be something simple like that. And, you know, you're going to walk there, by the way. Um, or, or you're going to park your car, you know, farther from work. I had one patient who... Um, she was doing double shifts as a caregiver in a nursing home. She had, and she was a single mom. So she really had, you know, not a lot of time in her schedule, but the, the goal for her was to do four flights of stairs every shift. And she started doing that very well. And, and she, I mean, she certainly felt a lot better and was really, really proud of herself when she came back to, to tell me about those things. And, and um, yeah, it was kind of a success story. So. Yeah, no, that's super cool. Um is are there any other success stories you'd like to share just as we kind of round out here that come to mind if not that's fine yeah um well there's definitely one there's certainly a, a like a, a few that stand out um one patient that i started with when i started my practice who had already been seen by the uh by the 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 internists initially and so had been kind of given the package you know and she really um she kind of bought right into it right off the you know right off the get go and and she um, she was all in. Um, she immediately changed her diet entirely to plant based, um, and actually got really. She was already had a background in cooking, so she became really enthusiastic about you know cooking new recipes. And she got her family involved. She started biking and hiking everywhere. Um, she was on antidepressants, antihypertensives, antihyperglycemics. Uh, right off the bat, we had to take her off her, her metformin because her blood sugar improved quite quickly. Um, and eventually, she was I think she was on one antihypertensive. We got her off of that. And uh, we've been working with her antidepressant in the last year. Um, initially, it was looking really positive, like she was going to get off it. But interestingly enough, she lost quite a bit of weight as well. And after making all these changes, um, there were a lot of... Um, 
personal changes that started happening as well on a deeper level. And I think it brought up some anxiety and, and there were some past traumas and it was a very, it's, it's a very, she's, she's a really interesting woman who's made a huge amount of change in her life, but also um, is, 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 is facing some, um, you know, some past, uh, past difficulties. And I think so. So anyways, uh, she was, she's been a huge success story overall and she's, um, not only made changes in her own life, but her the changes she's made have sort of rippled out and affected her husband and her two children. And and uh, you know, wow, to to think that her kids are learning from her the kind of changes that she's making um, uh, is really inspiring to me. To think that her kids will will grow up, um, you know, uh, with the kind of understanding that she's getting now as an adult, you know, in her late forties, um, passing it on to her kids is is awesome because you know that's uh that's going to make some bigger changes you know the the kind of changes that that uh that I think we need to maybe in in society hopefully yeah. I love that I love hearing happy stories <laughs> so yeah, if, yeah for sure so I guess if there is a well is there is there anything that you'd like to bring up that we haven't touched on already I think well one thing that I, I will say is that um you know I'm, I'm, I have a, I have a big interest in the evidence as well. And, and I am involved in an academic group at uh, UBC called the Therapeutics Initiative, who we are sort of, uh, do independent drug assessments, you know, as free from bias as possible, definitely free from industry bias. Um, and we advise, uh, MSP of BC on, on drug coverage and things like that. Um, I'm involved with them in a project to uh, promote some physical to promote physical activity prescription amongst primary care docs, and, and so that will be a letter and an educational presentation in October. But just to say that um, you know, looking through the evidence that that um, there are some some sort of issues with the evidence too that you know that I think um, need to be addressed. I think just for the more those with a more sort of academic bent, and that is. Most of these studies look at um, recall, um, sort of uh, subjective recall of exercise. So obviously there's a lot of potential for bias there, like uh, recall bias or, or social desirability. You know, people want to show that they've done well and that they, they've, they've, they've stuck to the plan, so to speak. So there's, there's possibility of bias there. And obviously it's really hard to blind these kinds of studies. So there's very little, there's often lack of blinding. And, and there can also be a lot of loss to follow up in those studies as well, or incomplete data that's not accounted for. So I think that those are sort of three issues in the, in the evidence that I'm seeing uh, as I review a lot more, um, which are probably just worth mentioning for those who are, so for those reasons, it makes it very difficult to make these kind of comparisons of lifestyle versus medication. And this has been another big area of interest for me is like, how do we make these kinds of comparisons? Is Are we really even talking about the same kinds of interventions here? I mean, obviously we're not. So, um, you know, is it fair to assess them by the same standards? And I think that that's sort of an open question. And I know that's sort of a question that many sort of academics in the field of lifestyle medicine are kind of looking at. And I think that's, for me, that's an area of, of interest as well. Um, and, and just to say that, uh, you know, that's sort of an ongoing, an ongoing issue. <laughs> yeah. No, thank yeah. you. Thank you for putting that out there. So I guess in closing, what is uh, one thing that you would like people listening to take away from this conversation? Maybe one final piece of advice. 
Yeah, just just do it. Just move. I mean, it, you know, there's there's really no magic to it. Um, you know, set yourself a something small, a small goal every day. Find some time in your day when you can do it, and acknowledge when you're doing it. You know, um, I think we we're way too hard on ourselves. We have like huge expectations. Um, you're gonna feel great just from doing five minutes or or whatever you can. So do something, do something small, and um, yeah, celebrate. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So if anyone uh, listening would like to reach out, connect with you, um, perhaps even work with you, uh, where can they find you? Are you on social media, the internet? I'm not on social media anymore. <laughs> I, uh, I gave that I up as a New Year's, re- I gave up as a New Year's resolution. Too many, uh, too many arguments about the evidence for or against lifestyle. And, uh, so, uh, but I think email is probably best and I can give you my, uh, my work email. It's Josh at aroga.com. That's uh, J O S H at a R O G a.com. Um, yeah. I love to, to talk about this stuff and hear from people and, um, yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for being here. This has been great. Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate the, the great questions and the opportunity to talk about all this stuff. It's a lot of fun for me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.